Our particular focus is going to be on verse 10, but for the sake of context, I want to begin in verse 5. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? For you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who, sanctifies, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Let's pray together. Gracious God, unveil the truth of your word to us. Change human hearts. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. As we look at this particular passage, we are in awe of the splendor and majesty of Christ. That's the whole purpose of the book. Christ is better. All that he has done is better. Everything in the new covenant is better. It's a key word in the book of Hebrews. But I want to ask this question as we get launched into expounding this text today. This question, what is proper for God? At first it seems to be an unusual question. Actually it's one that is raised every day in the minds of many people today. Man sits in his reclining comfy chair and asks God to present to him reasons why he should believe in him and reasons why the universe is being run the way it is. And if God uh, is approved by the man in his chair, then he might think about Christianity, he might think about being a follower of Jesus, but really man's in the driver's seat in the sense of he's the one in charge and God has to give an explanation. Man in his reclining chair thinks it's appropriate to ask God, why would you allow evil? If God is good, he would eliminate evil, right? Well, that's not something that's been thought through for even five seconds, because if God did that, if God did that today, guess what? We'd all be gone too, because we are evil. Man is by nature evil. We are not good. There is none that do good, the Bible says. No, not one. Just as we think that's a rhetorical phrase or a phrase that is just a hyperbole, no, no, not one. There is no one who does good according to God's standard 
of goodness. So if God were to wipe out evil, he would have to wipe out the entire human race. If he eliminated evil, he will eliminate you and me. We're evil in heart. Jesus said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven? Jesus had the right view, the biblical view of man. Not often is that the case with men and women on earth. They think of their God as a God of love, and he would never send people to hell. Could you imagine that? Some on the, on the precipice of hell, the Lord is this only loving God saying, now, now Johnny, now do this, it'll be good for you. Jump in. No, you can't even think of such a thing. Go on, Johnny, there's the lake of fire. Be a good boy, jump in. It's going to hurt me as much as it hurts you. No, Jesus taught about the reality of hell. And the fact is, Jesus taught that people are thrown into hell. Luke 12, 5. I'll show you whom to fear, Jesus said. Fear the one who, after you've been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. That is a verse never to be preached in many churches. There it is. People are thrown into hell. They don't willingly jump. So all of this is deemed inappropriate for God. And so the man in his chair says, explain that. God never comes to uh, terms with man by that means, by having to explain. He just declares and asks man as questions are raised in his sight or even in the mind of people. Remember, Job had a lot of questions for God. Jesus, uh, excuse me, God never answered them. He just asked him questions. Where were you when I made the universe, when I made Orion, when I laid the foundations of the earth. In verse 5 in Hebrews 2, the message is Jesus rules the world, the age to come. It doesn't look this way now, but that's the reality. We don't see it yet. We don't see the realities of the world to come, but it's coming. Never lose sight of that fact. The writer was writing to Hebrew Christians who were in the midst of persecution And it didn't look like things were great being a Christian. They faced much opposition in society. The cancelling of jobs and persecution was uh, starting. And yet the Bible here speaks of the glories of Christ's dominion right now. We don't see the full rule of Jesus, but we will in the age to come. In this age, no. In that age, yes. But we do see Christ on the throne now. Verses 10 through 18 in the chapter is outlining what the incarnation and the death of Christ mean for us. His full identification with humanity gives us immeasurable benefits. God didn't become an animal to save animals. He didn't become an alien to save animals. Aliens. He became a man to save the sons of men. The Son of God became the Son of Man, that the sons of men might become the sons of God. What an amazing thing our Bible declares. So it teaches us this. It teaches that through his sacrifice and ministry as high priest, Jesus Christ is on the throne saving all his people. He achieved that dominion through suffering and death. We saw that in the previous verse of verse 9. Jesus tasted death 
for everyone. And everyone here is a reference to the many sons he brings to glory. It is a reference to his brothers. In fact, the word brothers is mentioned three times in the next verses. The children, the offspring of Abraham, the people. That is the everyone. Everyone of the sons he is bringing to glory. He tasted death for them. Christ has brought liberation from the fear of death. And as his ministry continues as the great high priest, he gives us real, real aid in the present struggle with temptation and in our time of need. Think of that phrase, he tasted death for everyone. And understand this, this tasting is not to be understood as a taste as in a little sip. Would you taste the coffee? Would you taste the wine? No, this is tasting that in really in, it really means to fully experience. He tasted everything of death. He tasted it in all its ravages. Everything that death was, he tasted. Speaking of his death on the cross. Now, in the minds of many, this is a scandal. The Messiah, the one who's portrayed in the Old Testament as the coming ruler of uh, not only Israel, but all of society, all of the world. He rules and reigns. And now you're talking about a suffering Messiah. That's a contradiction in terms for many people, especially the Messiah suffering this criminal's death. It was the worst kind of death. Some people in Israel would say that there must be two types of Messiah because There are passages that speak of the triumphant king ruling and there are passages that speak of the suffering servant. The the Psalms speak of Psalm 23 of the the Messiah to come who uh, suffers an agonizing death on the cross. But there's not two messiahs, there's only one. And he achieved his throne by means of the suffering of death. A stumbling block to Jews, the Bible speaks of the cross. A stumbling block. Why? Because in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, it says this, the one who hangs on a tree is under a curse. You'll read that in Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. The one who hangs on a tree is under the curse of God. And so imagine going out, into Jewish society with this gospel. The Messiah has come and he was hung upon a tree. They're thinking, but we know Deuteronomy. The one on a tree is under the curse. Well, Galatians 3 tells us Christ became the curse for us to release to us the blessing of Abraham. He endured the curse that we might have the blessing. So we have a suffering Savior who's a deliverer and to... Jewish minds, it's a stumbling block to Gentile, Greek-thinking people. It's absurd. It's foolish. Come on. Some itinerant Jew getting nailed to a cross, that's the, the center point of all human history. That's absurd. And in the midst of this, we have Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10. Let's go there. And it starts with these words, for it was fitting. It was fitting... It was fitting that he, fitting for him. What does that word fitting mean? It means suitable, it means right, it means appropriate, it means proper. We started with the question, what is proper for God? And here the writer says, 
it was proper, it was fitting that something should happen. Entirely fitting, entirely appropriate, entirely proper. What? That God would perfect the captain of our salvation. As you read this particular statement, verse 10, that's what's in view. It's fitting for God to perfect the captain of our salvation through the means of suffering. That's what's being communicated in this verse. In other words, the writer understanding the opposition, the people around uh, those who were receiving this letter, he understood the, the arguments of those who opposed the Christian faith, and the writer turns on the critics and says, you may not see this as fitting, but it was entirely fitting that God would do it this way. What? Well, do what he did. What God has done is entirely appropriate. Let's move on to the next phrase. For whom and by whom all things exist. Now, the writer could have just said God. It would be fitting for God to do such and such and so and so, but he, he does not. The writer wants us to understand this and I believe the Holy Spirit does too. This God is a specific God who's not one of many. He's the creator of everything and the sustainer of everything. And this description, for whom and by whom all things exist, is a reminder of his right to rule, of his right to glory as the source and sustainer of everything. He's the cause. He's the agent. By the means of him, all things exist and are sustained. Is that your view of God? That's the God of the Bible. He's the efficient and final cause of all things. He's the originator. Hold your place, if you would, in Hebrews and go to uh, Romans chapter 11. I'd like to read familiar words there. Romans chapter 11. Paul in chapter 11 is bringing a description of God as he really is. Speaks of the goodness and the severity of God. But in verse 36, we read these words. For from him, this is Romans eleven thirty-six. from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So this is a similar phrase, is it not? From him speaks of, his, of origin. Through him speaks of him being the means of everything. And to him are all things. Everything will end up being for the glory of this one. And therefore, to him be the glory. Three statements are made. From him, through him, and to him. And if any one of those three statements is untrue, the final phrase would be invalid. To him be glory forever. If something in this world was not from him, something in this world was not through him, and something in this world was not to him, we would have no basis on which to say to him be glory forever. But because all things are from him, through him, and to him, to him be glory forever. That's true in creation. That's true in salvation. So it is. If one of those three clauses is not true, the last clause would be an illegitimate conclusion. But because all are true, to him belongs all the glory. Let's go back to Hebrews. 
One man summarized what is going on in this passage as this. God is the goal and the author of all things. And Jesus is the author and goal of salvation. Many people think that they themselves are the initiator in salvation. That They reach out to God and God says, well, let me think about it. Okay, yeah, I'll have you in. I'll, I'll bring you in. But that's not the biblical picture at all. God sees us defying him and sends his son anyway into this world on a mission to save his people throughout the world. And I want to ask you today, do you think he failed at that or do you think he succeeded or do you think he's succeeding? The Bible, let me give you the answer, is the answer is he is succeeding, he will succeed and he cannot fail. Praise the Lord. He's on a mission to save his people. It was said to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He'll not just try to. He's not just going to try to make salvation possible. And he's hoping as he paces up and down in heaven that man will decide to choose to receive what he has done. No, what Jesus did was be sent on a mission to save the elect and to provide the gift of repentance and faith for those same people. So we can't even take credit for the repentance and the faith we had. That itself is God's gift. God opens up our eyes, causes us to see the beauty of Christ so that we want him. And that's impossible outside of the work of the Holy Spirit. So creation, ladies and gentlemen, is all of God. And so is salvation. Salvation is of the Lord. And God's power and character are displayed in that salvation. We should stand in awe of this God. That's what's in view here. As we continue on, verse 10, it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory. That's the title of this message, bringing many sons to glory. We should view the vastness of space and be awed at the power of God. How can we not? The heavens declare the glory of God, the Bible says. But now we see an even greater display of power in the cross. By the means of the cross, God, through the Son, look, look at this, brings many sons to glory. Again, he doesn't just try to. He does this. What is God doing in sending his Son into the world to suffer? He's bringing many sons to glory not merely attempting to not merely trying to he's bringing them all the way home this is not a rescue mission with a chance of failure ladies and gentlemen depending on man for its accomplishment Jesus came to save many sons and bring them not merely to heaven that would be wonderful to get into heaven I don't mind being on the last row as long as I'm there you boy, the angels, oh, you just squeaked it in. You squeaked in, just, whoo, we were worried about you. But you're here, okay, enjoy. Uh, you can see the thrones from here. It's about a mile and a half, and you, you, you can see it from here, but you're in. Now, he brings the sons, all the sons, to glory. It's stunning. It's stunning power. If we understand our wretchedness and the power of the Savior, this is stunning stuff, ladies and gentlemen. He brings them to glory. Oh, the magnitude of this. Stunning power put on display. 
I don't know about you, but maybe you are haunted by your sins and you think, I've sinned big. John Newton, at the end of his life, said, my memory is fading, but I remember two things. I'm a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. We can look at our sin and the devil says, but you're such a great sinner. And we can say, yes, that is true, but have you seen the greatness of my Savior? He bore my sins in his body on the tree. God saves sinners. I qualify by being a sinner. And Christ saves sinners. He doesn't call the righteous, because there are none. He calls sinners to repentance. I'm a sinner. I've repented. And Christ has saved me all to the magnitude of his glory, not the greatness of my faith, not the greatness of the fact that my sins weren't that bad. No, they were that bad. But his atoning work is that stupendously magisterial and wonderful that we are aghast forever and ever and ever and ever at the magnitude of the power of God in saving guilty sinners. Amen. Amen. In the cross, we see either a stumbling block or foolishness, or we see the power of God. I'm quoting 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word, the message of the cross, is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it, the cross, is the power of God. It is the power of God. You want to see the power of God in your witnessing? Don't quote Luther and Calvin and these kind of guys. I, I, I like to do that. But... The power's in the message of the cross. The cross of Christ. That's where the power is. The gospel is the power of God. Paul said in Romans 1, wrote in Romans 1, 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it, the gospel, is the power of God. It doesn't just lead you to the power of God, it is the power of God. When the cross, when the gospel is proclaimed, power! Sorry, I woke you up. But... <laughs> If we could see in the spiritual realm, there are more vaults in that than anything you, you can find on earth. It is bigger and better than any lightning bolt that has ever hit planet earth. When the gospel goes out, you have no idea how much power is in effect when it saves a sinner. God takes this, this inebriated spirit that is in defiance of God and takes out a heart of stone, puts in a heart of flesh that now beats to know Christ. Do you think, where did this love come from? It didn't come from you. It comes from the power of God. The master surgeon, the Holy Spirit has gone to work on your heart and opened you up. You say, I never asked for it. That's right. People, we don't have to ask for a heart transplant. God comes and does the surgery by the power of the Holy Spirit. When the word goes forth, the Holy Spirit, as he wills, dances on human hearts, opens up the flesh and says, out, heart of stone, in, heart of flesh, that beats to know Christ. Why do you think you'll be serving God and believing God next Thursday? In the realm of romance, people wake up on some Thursday and they say, I lost that loving feeling. <laughs> and it's gone, gone, gone. Finish it for me. Whoa, whoa, whoa. There it is. I lost it. You can lose your love. But the love that God has put in your heart will beat for eternity. That's the kind of love he's put on the inside of you. 
And through many dangers, toils and snares, you may have already come, but it's grace that has brought you here thus far and grace that will lead you home. You are not the source of your heart affection for God. God is. God has opened up your heart. God has opened up your ears. God has opened up your eyes to see the beauty of Christ so that you want him. And eight minutes before, you didn't. And you will want him for all eternity. You'll not be bored in heaven when all that is before you is Christ. You'll be thrilled. I get to see him. Yes. For how long? Ten minutes? No, forever and ever and ever. And my heart can't help it be thrilled. And you overflow with praise. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. You'll not be thinking there, how long is this song going to go on? It's the power of God. I need to calm down. We're in church. (laughs) Next phrase. Should make the founder of their salvation. What are we talking about? Notice the context again. It was fitting for God to do this. To do what? That he should make the founder of their salvation. Now, notice too, it was fitting... But he is the founder of their salvation. We're not talking about salvation in general, but their salvation. Who are the there? They are the children of God, the offspring of Abraham, the brothers, the many sons. Their salvation. The word founder here is the Greek word archegos, and it means supreme. It means origin. Kent Hughes uh, uses an analogy. I think this is very helpful of the mountain climber who goes ahead of the others, chipping away footholds, inserting pythons, and extending the rope to his partners. He's the one who goes before and everyone else follows him. It's a word in Greek that is dis- it's really, di- really difficult to express in one English word, but it means leader, author, founder, Some of our versions speak of him being the captain of our salvation, the champion, the pioneer. I think that last word, pioneer, might be the best word to use. Jesus is the divine pioneer of our salvation. He gets all the way to glory, and he brings the sons, the many sons, to glory. But there's more. This pioneer doesn't lose anyone on the mountain. There were 19 that attempted, O oh Father, but 17 arrived. We lost two on the way. Jesus has never lost one true sheep. He never will. We know from John 6, Jesus made it clear that his will was to do his Father's will. And he said, this is the will of my Father, that of all you've given me, I lose Nothing but raise it up on the last day. I love that. He's a perfect savior. He's a good shepherd. You know what a good shepherd is? Someone who doesn't lose sheep. You're not a good shepherd if you have 73 sheep and you lose 20 overnight. He's a good shepherd. And he lays down his life for the sheep. And he brings them all home, wagging their tails behind them. He brings them all to the summit. He brings them all to the loftiest place. That summit being, in one word, glory. 
the goal of this salvation. And bear in mind, we're still in the chapter where he has referred to this salvation as this great salvation. Hebrews chapter 2. The goal of this great salvation is the bringing of many sons to glory. Not just squeak them by into heaven, but glory so that they will be of themselves glorious, radiating the glory of God, but seeing glory. Theologians refer to this as the beatific vision. It's the height to which all of us will one day go who know the Lord. We will see Him as He is. We will see Him in His glory. Continuing on. Perfect through suffering. Hold on, hold on. This Jesus, He's the pioneer, yes. And He was made perfect through suffering. Wasn't He always perfect? How can He be made perfect? Well, we're in Hebrews chapter 1. Let's go back to chapter... Excuse me, Hebrews chapter 2. Let's go back to chapter 1 and look at verse 3, talking of Him as the Son. He, verse 3, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds how many things? The universe, all things, by the word of His power. After having made purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he's the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. So he's already perfect, right? So how can he be made more perfect? Let me tell you what this phrase does not mean. It does not mean the addition of something. It does not mean the removal of something. He is moral perfection. He is sinless through and through. Let's see this also in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4. Look with me in verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He's flawless. He's perfect. Look at chapter 7. Look at verse 26. Hebrews 7. For it was indeed fitting, there we are, it was indeed fitting that we should have a, such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. So, while he had to be made perfect, we need to understand, it does not mean he was less than holy, now he is. He was less than innocent, now he is. He was less than unstained, but... Now he is, no, um, he is perfect, he was perfect, and yet he was made perfect. Let's go to chapter 9, verse 14. <coughs> Contrasting the work of Old Testament atonement with Christ's atonement, how much more, verse 14, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish, to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Let's go back to Hebrews 5. I think we have a real key here. Hebrews chapter 5, look at verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Oh, that's the suffering. That's what's in view. He learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect. 
He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. I believe verses 8 and 9 here about the suffering and the perfection is an explanation of what we're reading in Hebrews 2. He was made perfect through suffering. He learned obedience and being made perfect. That phrase, learned obedience, is key to our understanding. People in the auto industry come up with a new car, they design it, they make a prototype, and then they do what? They test it to see if what they think will happen when it runs actually happens when it does run. They run it at high speed. They think they've got a good safety mechanism and then they crash it into walls with dummies inside. They do that. I'm not talking about people. I'm talking about dummies inside, you know? And they do that over and over and over and over because though they think it's perfect, on paper it's perfect, it has to be tested. And Jesus' perfection had to be tested. There was the first Adam. He looked perfect. There seemed to be no flaws. But when tested, he failed. But this, the last Adam, when he was tested, when he was tempted, he succeeded. He defied every one of Satan's temptations, even to the point of death, even the hideous death on the cross. He succeeded as the last Adam where the first Adam failed. That's what's in view. He was perfect, but it was an untested perfection. Now, this perfection was proven by means of his obedience. That, ladies and gentlemen, is what's in view. A proven perfection. This Jesus is not only perfect, he's proven to be perfect. Temptation, tested and proved. We're not. Never does the Bible ask us to ask God, Lord, would you lead me into temptation? No, lead me not into temptation. But when Jesus was baptized, the Bible tells us the Spirit drove him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. In other words, okay, devil, have at him. I believe he'll come through the temptation. No, I, I, I'm, I'm flawed. I need to say, Lord, lead me not into temptation. If there's a temptation on 43rd Avenue, let me drive on 51st. I, I need to avoid that. But for Jesus, he was perfect, but it had to be tested. That attestation. He's perfect. He's perfect. And it's as if God can say, my son, he's, he's devil-proof. In him I'm well pleased. Have at him, devil. If it was me, everyone should be fearful. But God wasn't fearful. He knew he would pass the test. He did. When we sit in our chair, we might say, but God, you don't understand temptation. We can't say that since the Incarnation. Such would be a denial of omnipotence and omniscience, God knowing everything. But when God became a man and suffered in the way Jesus did, we can't say, God, you don't understand. He does. Because of the incarnation 
because of the God-man exposed to the full brunt, the full force of temptation and suffering, and coming through morally perfect, he's able to fully identify with us and sympathize with us, bringing us his tenderness, his sympathy, his compassion. That's what's in full view. That's what Hebrews 2 is teaching us. Look at verse 18, Hebrews 2, 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Child of God, he's near you, even in your temptation, even in your suffering. But back to that phrase in verse 10, many. Do you see that? Bringing many sons to glory. How many? Let's go to the book of Revelation. I'm thankful to God that the number of the elect is not 28. You'd read some blogs and you think that's the case. I'm saved, you're saved, and I'm concerned about you. That's it. No, look at this. Revelation chapter 7. How many people will be saved? Verse 9, and after this I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. Oh, aren't we going to get a number? No, God knows the number, but it's so great. It's beyond our ability to even fathom. And it does not say it's every nation and everybody in every nation, but it's a people from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's the theme of heaven. In heaven, we've got our theology right. He did it all. Spurgeon makes the claim that before Christians enter heaven, the fact is they've had their sins washed clean, but before they enter heaven, they'll have their brains washed clean. (laughs) Amen. We all believe the right thing there. Do you know, ladies and gentlemen, we will see it? Let me quote Romans chapter 8. We can go there. We've got... Just a moment. Romans chapter 8. Look at verse 18. What's the point of evangelism? Only 17 people will end up in heaven anyway. No, it's a number so vast we can't count. Romans 8.18. For I consider, hear this child of God, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy comparing With what? The glory that is to be revealed to us. You don't see it now, but you will. And nothing you go through can compare to the weight and the worth of the glory you will one day see. Child of God, you may think you're at the end of your rope. Actually, God is holding you even now. You're not on your own. He's holding you while you're thinking, I'm at the end of my rope. He's holding you. Let me quote 2 Corinthians 4. For this light, momentary affliction, Paul, what he went through, shipwrecks, stonings, all kinds of abuse, all kinds of emotional heartache, people who... He loved dearly who left him. 
That's often harder than physical brutality. And he called all of it light affliction. Light, momentary affliction. The only way he could see it that way was in the light of eternity. For this, 2 Corinthians 4.17, this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal way of glory. Beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things which are seen, but to the things that are not seen, unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Glory. And you're a Pentecostal man, that's kind of all he said in a service. Glory! Glory! I used to think he needed to get a better vocabulary, expand it just a little bit, but I think in heaven, I'll be looking for that man. And I'll be shouting with him, Glory! Glory! Everywhere I look, glory! He's right. Such will be our gaze for all eternity. We'll be basking in the wonder, the stunning wonder of the glory of God. How fitting. How fitting that this Jesus is the perfect pioneer of salvation, bringing many sons to glory. Would you repeat that phrase? Bringing many sons to glory. You're headed for glory. We look in the mirror and we wonder, what's that looking back at me? Is it animal, vegetable, mineral? What is that thing? Not when you're in your 20s, but when you get a certain age, you think. <laughs> but you'll be glorious. You'll be so glorious that apart from the Holy Spirit checking our hearts, we would be prone to worship one another. Such is the glory that we will be resplendent in around the throne. God will keep us from that, I'm sure. But we will be glorious. You're going to be as earthly and finite could ever be, like him. And yet, we are only like him because of him and because of his work. And in heaven, we speak of heaven as glory. I'll see you in glory. That's where he's taking you. Jesus made it clear, they persecuted me, they will persecute you. The Bible says that all who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We will suffer in this world, but we are recipients of the perfect love of God. And that's why Jesus is able to sympathize in compassion. I pray that you find comfort today in the face of Christ One thing I cannot do is show you Christ. For the Holy Spirit can. My prayer, my trust is that he will show you this perfect pioneer of salvation who overcame our greatest adversary, the devil, and sin, and death, and curse, and sickness, and disease, and poverty, and any earthly ill. He has overcome it all. And in the new creation, there'll not be a trace of it. God will wipe all tears from our eyes so that we can see him 
And we will say it was all worth it. Whatever I went through, it was just light, momentary affliction. And now, forever and ever and ever and ever, I will see his face. If you had, I've used this illustration before, it bears repeating. If you had a little bit of rope and it, by the rope, represented the earthly years of our lives, even for one foot for every year that we live, most of us will never have a hundred feet of rope. But imagine a hundred feet of rope, how far will it go? That would epitomize life on planet Earth. How would we try to signify life in eternity? Well, it would certainly extend beyond the 100 feet of rope, but how far? It would go out of this building. It would go across the parking lot. It will go to South Phoenix. It will go to Tucson. It will go to Australia. It will go all around the world and around the world and now around the world, and it would never, ever, 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 ever stop. This life is so fleeting. Whatever, I mean this with all the compassion and sympathy of my heart, whatever you're going through, please understand your suffering here in the light of eternity. That's your hope. And in the light of eternity, you think, that back there was nothing in comparison. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. It was fitting for God to make him the pioneer of our salvation as he brings many sons to glory through his perfect learned obedience and suffering and in his death on the cross. For those that do not know you, may they repent of their sin, recognizing the, the worth and the value of Christ Turn from all sin and turn to the Savior. And in seeing him, find all their earthly and heavenly dreams fulfilled. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Show us Christ. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.